0: and identify who God says you are. But the fact that He talks Creating an image through the words that the Holy Ghost gives to us. It's creating an image that's vastly different from what we would see in in and of ourselves without receiving the truth of the Word. Well, what image does it create? What image does the Bible identify for us? What image is the Holy Spirit revealing to us that's different than what we might see or feel in ourselves? Well, the first thing the Bible says concerning the new birth is that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. So the Bible must be painting a picture, and thank God it does. It's painting a picture of us being righteous, no matter whether or not we feel righteous or whether or not our lives look like we're righteous. That may be the most foundational thing that Christians turn away from. I know that was one of the hardest things for me to grasp, that righteousness was not identified or created by my activity or my behavior. And in spite of the fact that my behavior may have contradicted what the Bible portrays as righteousness, it doesn't change the fact that our nature has been altered by the new birth and we have been made righteous. Well, what else does this picture portray of us? Well, it portrays victory. It shows us to be victorious, based in fact because of our righteousness. But it paints a picture of us being victorious in every area of life. Since Jesus said whatever things we call for or require in his name, King James says ask, but it really means call for or require. In his name, he said he would do it. The Bible picture of you is someone with unlimited power unlimited resources, heavenly resources to bring you into victory, no matter what the devil is doing to you. The picture that the Bible paints for us is that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. Now that's if the Bible is true, and if it's the word of God, it has to be true. Then that means whether or not we're being attacked with sickness and disease. The image of the scripture, the image that God paints of us is that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. Same thing's true where prosperity is concerned. No matter what our bank book looks like, the picture that the Bible portrays of us, that if we're going to be pleasing unto God, we have to hold on to and continue in, shows us to have unlimited resources as a result of the Spirit of God that indwells us. So this is the picture that the Bible is painting for us. And the whole thing hangs... On whether or not we will be a doer and not just a hearer let's read it again verse 22 but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves notice the people that are deceived are self-deceived now what self-deception is he talking about he's talking about being a hearer only and not a doer he's talking about somebody that looks into the word sees the picture that god paints but says, nah, that's not me. I'm not living up to that. And so they turn away. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in the mirror. He sees himself in the word. He sees himself the way God said that he is, as long as he's looking at himself in the mirror of the word of God. But he doesn't stay there. He doesn't continue. He beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Now again, folks, that means that presupposes, and, and we should, I'm sure we all recognize this. We may not think of it in these terms. But we all recognize that the Word of God says we are what we may not appear to be. So forgetting what manner of man he is means that the image won't stay unless you keep the image before you. The image of who you are in Christ will pass away just as soon as you quit looking at the mirror. He beholdeth himself in the word of God and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. Now what does continue mean? It means to stay in a certain place or abide. To stay in a certain place or abide or live in that place. So where it's talking about continuing therein, it means keep your eyes on the word. That place that you're not to depart from is the place where you continue to see yourself the way the Bible says you are. Now, I'll draw your attention to this. You remember, I, I assume, the scriptures in John chapter 8, where Jesus is talking to the Jewish uh, people in the Jewish com- community, even some of the Pharisees in the, uh, the Sanhedrin that believed on him. And it says, Jesus said to those disciples, or so, said to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Notice the word continue is there too. It's the same word. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. That's the same thing James is saying by the Holy Ghost about being a doer of the word. So if we can put these together, put Jesus what Jesus said together with what James wrote to us by the Holy Ghost, we have to conclude that a disciple is a doer of the word. A disciple is a doer of the word. Now the doing of the word he's talking about is keeping your eyes on the picture that the Bible paints of you. Folks, think about that. God created words to be carriers and to reveal things. It paints images for us. And a great part of our Christian walk, a great part of our fellowship with God is seeing yourselves as he has portrayed you to be, not the way you normally look at you. You remember when the 12 spies went into Israel, went into Canaan land, 10 of them came back with an evil report. They said, we can't take the cities because the cities have walls around them and the armies are stronger than us. They'll destroy us. But two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can do it. Well, they saw the same walls. The walls of Jericho were just as high for Je- Caleb and Joshua as they were for the other 10. They saw the same military strength of the enemy that the other ten did. Why did they take a different position? What was their confidence based on? Very simply, God said he was giving it to them. God said the land is yours. That's all they had to go on. But look at the difference in the images that the two groups considered. The ten spies saw only the physical realm. They saw only the height of the walls and the military strength of the enemy. Caleb and Joshua saw the same things naturally, physically, that the other 10 did. But they saw something more. They saw what God had said to them about the promised land. He said, It's yours. He said, I'm bringing you into the promised land. I'll give you the victory over anybody and everybody that withstands you or stands against you. That's the picture they saw. And folks, that one different image, that one different approach to the image of themselves, even the tent even said we're grasshoppers in their sight. We see ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's the way the enemy sees us too. Well, fast forward 40 years, when they after they disobey God and spend 40 years in the wilderness, they come back to the same place. Joshua is now in charge. He sends two spies in. And the two spies find out from the people in Jericho, particularly Rahab the harlot. She's wondering where they've been for 40 years because they've always been afraid of these guys since the first time they showed up. So when the 10 spies came back and said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and we're like grasshoppers in our sight, and so are we in theirs, that was totally untrue. They assumed that other people saw them the way that they saw themselves. But they find out in 40 years, well, not them, they they died. The rest of that generation died. But the ones that went in, the ones, their children found out that the people of Jericho, the one with the wall city and the great big walls and the ones that were too strong militarily to fight against or to win the battle against, They've known all along that this land is going to be taken from them and given to Israel. So you got two of the ten that are doers of the word by this definition. They saw themselves the way that God portrayed in his word. Now folks, God can't lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So if God says you're something even if you don't look like you are what he says... Somebody's got to be true and somebody's got to be a liar. What's the lie? The lie is what your body's telling you. The lie is what your physical senses tell you. The truth is what God says because it's God's word. The truth is always what God says. Folks, remember the, the story of creation it tells us that God's created the world and everything in the world by words. When he said, let there be light, there was light. When he said, let there be dry land, then the waters receded and there was dry land. God created everything that we know. Everything about this physical realm was created by unseen words, unseen forces released, whose power was released in words. So God knows something very well, even if we hadn't figured it out. He knows that what he says comes to pass. He knows that whatever he says is the absolute truth. And there is no wisdom in standing against the truth of God's word. No matter what it looks like, the word of God is true. That means you're righteous since the Bible says you've been made the righteousness righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That means you're righteous no matter how you see yourself. Since the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. You're healed whether you, whether the doctor says so or not. Yeah, but our physical condition conflicts with that. Our physical condition tells us something else, shows us something else. Then you're going to have to decide which one you're going to look at. You're going to have to decide what you're going to see. Remember Abraham and his faith in Romans chapter 4 is identified As looking under the promise of God, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. In other words, Abraham's faith is our example because he was a doer of the word. He accepted and held fast to, he stayed in, the image that God painted of him and not what he saw or felt of himself. Folks, you do realize, I hope, that everything about this physical realm conflicts with faith. Everything about this physical realm is in opposition to faith. We know that faith is identified as believing in the heart and saying with the mouth. Well, believing in the heart means believing from your spirit, believing independent of your five physical senses, believing what God's word says, believing what God said about you instead of what your five physical senses tell you. And everything about this natural realm fights against that. And I believe that's the main reason why so, many, so few Christians walk by faith. Why so many Christians have a hard time reconciling the word of God with their lives. They're trying to judge the word based on how they see themselves. They're trying to judge the word of God the truth of the reality of the Word of God based on how they see or feel about themselves. Where the Bible is telling us very clearly that the road to victory and the way that God wants us to walk in this Christian life, in the midst of this world where we have enemies on every hand, is to accept the truth, accept the reality of the picture that the Bible paints for us. See, if you are who the Bible says you are, nothing is impossible to you. That'll make your flesh recoil. If the Bible is true and the image that the Word of God paints for us, that means you have authority over all the work of the enemy. Your body will rebel against that. Your body, particularly your mind, the part of the soul that hasn't been saved yet, your mind will tell you that can't be true. Now, why can't it be true? Because of our experience. Because of the experience we have in this natural realm. The experience we have with our physical bodies. When the Bible talks victory, we think of defeat. We mean the modern day church. I hope that doesn't mean you. Certainly doesn't mean me. But the church thinks of defeat even though the Bible speaks victory. What does that mean? That means they've forgotten the picture that the Bible painted for them. Now, the reason they forget may be a matter of judgment. I don't think it's a matter of they forget what they heard about the truth. But they choose to believe something else rather than the truth of God's word. And those very same Christians will go to, to, into prayer asking God to help them how can you expect God to help you if you've taken sides against his word? The victory of the Christian life is because of the word, because of our adherence to the word, because we accept the truth of the word. But it seems to me that the modern day Christian rejects for the most part the liberty and the power and the reality of the, the, the word of God which paints the image of of us being victorious, and then ask God to help us. Then we ask God, then they ask God, to lead them into victory. Well, folks, the path of victory is the Word. You can't take sides against God's Word and expect Him to help. I see this a lot with people fighting sickness in their bodies. There's a lot of people that don't want to take the time to put the Word of God in their hearts. They don't want to take the time or put forth the effort to fight the fight of faith, they don't want to accept the part where the Bible says God sent His word and healed us. They'd rather pray for God to do something apart from His word, outside of His word, just some special blast of power, and receive their healing that way. And that's very rare. I won't say it never happens, but it rarely happens that way. It rarely happens that way. Turn with me to Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, it says, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. The word void means empty or powerless. It shall not return unto me empty or powerless. But it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Now, if he had just said it would prosper in the things that I I please, or accomplish the things that I please, then that would be a place for the sovereignty of God people, the folks that, whose uh, doctrine is that God's in charge and he's running the show and whatever he does is what he wants to do and whatever he doesn't want to do, he doesn't do. But the last phrase where it says, it'll prosper in the thing whereto I sent it tells us specifically that words, the word of God, Scripture, has a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is according to what the word says, according to what God said, he either will do or has done. For example, there are scriptures that deal with healing. There are scriptures that deal with peace. There are scriptures that deal with finances. Scriptures that deal with Christian character. He's saying, the scripture is saying, God said specifically to his people, to you and me. He's saying, whatever the subject matter is of the words that I speak, it always works in that area. It never returns unto me void. It always works in that area. Now, how does the word of God return to it? Let's back up a couple of verses. God uses the, uh, the water cycle to identify his word coming from heaven. Verse 8, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. So what does God want us to do? He wants us to understand his thoughts and act according to his ways. If he's just saying, I'm higher than you and you'll never get to my level, then why does he say anything else about his word and the power of his word? He's trying to get us to think his thoughts. Well, that would be the same thing as receiving the engrafted word, wouldn't it? If you receive the engrafted word, the word engrafted is talking about making a part of you, not just something that you memorize, but something that you receive into your spirit. In other words, something that you confess, something that you hold fast to, something that you meditate in and upon. That's what puts the Word of God on the inside of you. That's what gets it down into the, the real you and not just a part of your mind. So if we receive with meekness the engrafted Word, that means we accept the picture that the Bible portrays of us, the truth of what God has done. So God says... To the Old Testament people uh, of Israel, he said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Well, again, if he's trying to keep us in the dark, if he's just letting us know that he thinks and, and acts, operates bigger than we can, then why does he describe how he works? Why does he describe... That which reveals his thoughts and his ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returns not there, returns not back to heaven, but waters the earth, and makes it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. In other words, he's saying, Any rain that comes from heaven affects the earth that it falls upon. Anytime rain comes down, in any form it comes, it affects the earth that it falls upon. You can't keep it from affecting the earth that it falls upon. Nothing can stop it from doing what rain is supposed to do, which is water the ground. And God said, this is like my word. So what does he want us to understand? Well, he's not talking about the physical earth. He uses the water cycle as an example in the natural realm but the only ground God really cares about is you remember in Mark chapter 4 Jesus tells us the parable of the sower sowing the word and remember there are four types of ground that the word the seed of the word fell upon first the wayside then the stony ground then the thorny ground then good ground well everybody understands he's talking about people you're some type of ground Whether or not you're the good ground depends on what you do and what you accept to be true from the word of God. So here we're talking about the water that comes from heaven, the rain that comes from heaven, waters the earth and you can't stop him from watering the earth. He's saying in the same way, in like manner, you can't stop the word of God from producing the results that he sent it to accomplish. It will do the work that it's supposed to do if it falls in good ground. Now, what's our job? Well, our job is to hear the word that's spoken and to make sure that we're good ground and not the wayside, not thorny ground and not stony ground. That's the work that we do. That's a part of the work that's necessary to receive the engrafted word or make the word a part of our heart. But folks, realize nearly everything God says, nearly everything that is destined and preordained to accomplish what he sent it to do. Conflicts with what you see and experience. It conflicts with what you see. It conflicts with what you feel. It conflicts with all of your five physical senses. That's what makes it the word of God. Because it's not man's thoughts. It's not the way man would operate in and of himself. And except the word tells us what we're supposed to do. Except the word tells us how to operate in faith concerning his word we'd still be in the dark. But he reveals it to us through his word. He reveals it to us by the words that he speaks. So he says, just like the rain comes down and the snow comes from heaven and returns not to heaven but waters the earth. In other words, it says doesn't return to the earth until after it waters the earth. It makes the, the rain or the snow makes the earth bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Anytime the seed of God's word finds good ground, it always produces results. You can't keep it from producing results. You remember also in Mark chapter 4, I think it's about verse 26, 28, somewhere around there, where Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower sowing the word and how that all of the kingdom of heaven works this way. He says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and he sleeps and rises day after day, and it brings forth fruit, and the farmer doesn't even know how it, do- how it works. Thank God it's not necessary to know how everything works. It's only necessary to believe God and it will work. He sleeps and rises day after day and the seed comes forth and he doesn't even know how. It's just what it's saying here. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it shall prosper in the thing where to us in it. Now some people might say, then why doesn't the word work for everybody? Seems like if the word always prospers according to what God sent it to do or accomplishes what he sent it for, then it seems like everybody that hears healing scriptures should be healed. Everybody that hears prosperity scriptures should be prosperous. Everybody that hears righteousness scriptures should recognize their righteousness. But notice what he said. He said it doesn't return unto him void. It doesn't return unto him void. That's not to say that it's not void in the earth in people's lives well how's it going to return to him there's only one way God's word can return to him and that is it. That is if we speak it back to him now folks that is what makes the difference between good ground and stony ground good ground and thorny ground certainly good ground in the wayside because if you're going to receive with meekness and engraft the word into your spirit make it a part of you there's only one way that that works and that is to meditate in the word of God by speaking it And God is saying even in the Old Testament, whenever you speak the word of God back to me, it always releases the power to accomplish what it was sent to do. Now that's the picture or part of the picture that the Bible paints for us. That's the image that God wants us to see. You remember Mark 11, when Jesus curses the fig tree. Next morning they come by and it's dried up from the roots. Peter calls to remembrance and says, Jesus, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered away. And Jesus explains how things work. He said, have faith in God. Other translations say, have the faith of God. And there's no way you can distinguish whether he's saying, have faith in God or of God from the language. But we know that the Bible says we have the same spirit of faith as God has. So have faith, the faith of God would certainly fit. Well, What kind of faith does God have? God has the God kind of faith. What other kind of faith would God have except the God kind? So we can say from verse 22, Mark 11:22, Jesus said, have the kind of faith that God has or have the God kind of faith. And then he explains or describes what it is. It's not for a select few, although there may be few that choose to accept it. It's a principle that will work for everybody. He said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Jesus is telling us. He's identifying for us. Here's how to make the word of God powerful. Speak to the mountain. Now who's going to talk to a mountain if they don't have some inkling that it's going to produce results? He's not saying that the body of Christ should be a, m- a bunch of nuts going around talking to themselves but he's saying the power of God is released when you speak it whosoever shall say under this mountain my word shall not return unto me void that's why it's so important for us to speak the word if you don't speak the word you're not giving the word of God any opportunity to, to exhibit the power of God that it was sent to do or sent to change so Jesus even tells us, whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, that means shall not say anything according to his five physical senses, hold fast his profession of faith, in other words, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe in his heart, that his words shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith." Now what is the foundation? What reason are we given to believe that our words will come to pass? That's part of the image that the Bible portrays of us. So you're not going to be operating in faith if you're not believing in the image. You're not going to be operating in faith if you forget the image that portrays and reveals the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. But if you act according to that image... You're going to be blessed in your deed, James says. In other words, you'll be blessed in the areas that you exhibit, uh, that you speak the word of God, that you release your faith. Now I want you to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, notice what Paul says. Let's start in verse 3. He said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. I want you to notice this. What's a stronghold? A stronghold is a defensive place of our enemy. It's the place where Satan has fortified himself in us. He's not talking about pulling down strongholds or delivering cities. I know there was some crazy teaching 15 or 20 years ago I guess now about praying out the forces of evil in a city by getting on the rooftops from a high position and praying against the work of the devil and they said that their purpose was to pull down the devil's strongholds well folks I want you to notice that the stronghold that Paul is talking about by the Holy Ghost is not over some city it's in your mind Now think about what that means. That means there are things, areas, that Jesus has made us free that people fail to take advantage of or fail to appropriate in their lives because of wrong thinking. Because of wrong thinking that the devil has influenced us to think over and over and over again until we've built up a defensive place, not a defense against us, but a defense against the word of God. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly, but mighty through God. He doesn't say we don't have weapons. He just says they're not carnal or physical weapons. But instead, they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How are we going to pull down these strongholds? Casting down imagination. The word imagination means reasonings. It can be the traditions of men, or it can just be wrong thoughts. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Where do we get the knowledge of God from? God's Word. It's the only place we're going to learn Him or learn of Him. Casting down imaginations in everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, or we might even say in the Word of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. Now what's the purpose Of bringing into obedience every thought. It breaks down the strongholds. It undoes. The defensive positions of the enemy. Of our enemy Satan. In other words. When we get rid of those strongholds. Then we become good ground. For the word of God to produce results in. But as long as the devil is holds or maintains those strongholds in our thinking. As long as we think wrong, then we rob the power of the Word of God from any effectiveness in our lives. See, if we built up a stronghold in the area of sickness and disease, for example, and a stronghold might be the thought or the doctrine that God uses sickness and disease to teach us. Well, as long as somebody is believing that God uses sickness and disease to teach us something, there's no way that they can exhibit faith for healing, even though the Bible is very clear that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes were healed. The Bible is very clear that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with His stripes were healed. Very clear on that fact. And if God is true, or told us the truth in what He said in Isaiah 55. That his word will not return void, but will accomplish that which he sent it to do. He sent healing scriptures to accomplish healing in our bodies, right? But if we've got that wrong thinking in our minds, then that robs the power of the, of God's word from affecting a healing and a cure in our bodies. Because if you're thinking that God brings sickness on us to teach us something, you're certainly not going to be confessing for your healing. And so although there are healing scriptures, an abundance of healing scriptures, any one of which is sufficient when received and when acted on to bring healing to our bodies, the power of the word of God is stripped, stripped away by wrong thoughts. That's why it's so important to receive the engrafted word to save your souls. The saved soul means the soul without strongholds. The soul is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. It means a mind that accepts the truth of God's word because it's done the work of pulling down Satan's stronghold so that we think right. If we don't think right, we can't believe right. If we don't believe right, then we can't confess the word. And therefore, God's word, the most powerful thing in the universe, the origin of everything in the universe, is stripped of its power for our benefit it's stripped of his power so that it produces no benefit to us Jesus was talking to a group of Pharisees one day and he said you have made the word of God of none effect and he's talking about the same thing he's talking about the the word of God being stripped of power he says, by your traditions which means reasonings you have made the word of God of none effect now folks realize what that means Because man has been given authority on the earth. God doesn't have authority here on the earth. He gave it to man. Man didn't lose that authority when he fell in the Garden of Eden. He lost some of the great benefits of walking in the Spirit. So that he could exercise authority in the right way. But he didn't lose his authority. So if we're taking sides against God's Word, thinking something contrary to what the Word of God says then there's no way. That becomes a stronghold in somebody's mind and that robs them of the ability to believe right, to believe the word of God, to speak the word of God and see the results appear and manifest in his life. But if on the other hand, we recognize areas in our life that we're not enjoying the victory that the Bible says we have, In other words, if we see areas in our lives where we become convinced that this is the way that it should be because it's the picture that the Word of God paints of us. It's the way that the Word of God portrays us to be. If we recognize that we're not enjoying victory in those areas, then we go back to our thinking. We go back to identify where am I thinking wrong about this? Then when we pull down those strongholds, then our spirits are free and clear to speak the Word of God and see the Bible come to reality in our lives. Folks, that's all Jesus did. When Jesus was tempted of the devil, of course, he didn't have any strongholds to pull down. So when the devil tempted him, Jesus used one and only one weapon, and that is it is written. That's all he said it is written and then quoted the scripture. And that was sufficient to chase the devil off. Now did the devil run off because he was the son of God? Well if it's being the son of God made the difference then why did the devil ever approach him or confront him? If the devil knew that being the son of God made him victorious automatically then why tempt him? And if these things that the devil tempted him with were not bona fide temptations then Jesus was a participant in the fraud. See, some people have the idea that Jesus walked on the earth as the Son of God in righteousness and in power according to what he had in the heavenlies before he came to the earth. But if that were true, then he wasn't an example of, our, uh, of man and man's life here on the earth. But if, on the other hand, the Bible, what the Bible says about Jesus stripping himself of his heavenly power and glory is true, and that means he didn't come to the earth with any power that he had before. He was the son of God. His nature was righteous. And that was the importance of the virgin birth. But once he was born, he didn't have any more power or authority as a human being than you and I have. If what he said of himself was true. I kind of believe it was. That's why he had to be anointed of the Holy Ghost. To begin his healing ministry and his miracle ministry. See, if Jesus came to the earth as the Son of God with power from on high from before he came to the earth, before the foundations of the world existed, then why would he need to be anointed of the Holy Ghost? And a step further than even that, who could anoint him? Can God anoint God? I hope you see the point. But when Jesus was anointed of the Holy Ghost, then the miracles began. Now here's a question for you. How did Jesus know of the plan that God had for his life? If he remembered being in heaven beforehand, then he didn't operate as a man like the Bible says he did. Well, if he didn't remember events in heaven... And have that as the basis for him, his life and ministry. Then how did he find himself? How did he find the reality of God's will for him? Folks, he found himself the same way you and I have to find ourselves. He found himself in the Word. He found himself in everything that God had prophesied about him. And everything that God prophesied that he would do. See, Jesus was in all points tempted like we are. Jesus was in all points, in every way, just a human being as we are. That's why Jesus told his disciples that they could do the same work that he did and even greater work. Because they were men made righteous by his blood and anointed of the Holy Ghost to do the work just like he was. But if it depended on being the son of God, then nobody would have been able to do the works that Jesus did. If Jesus healed the sick and performed miracles on the earth in his three-year ministry here on the earth because he was the son of God, then how in the world is he going to effectively or successfully delegate that healing power and authority to other people? Nobody was the son of God but him. So how did the disciples heal the sick while he was here on the earth? If it was based on him being the son of God? It wasn't. It was based on him having authority on the earth and the anointing of the Holy Ghost that was upon him. In other words, he operated here on the earth the same way he told us that we had operate. Righteous, with authority from heaven, originally conferred on Adam and Eve, but still existing upon us, or we're charged to do the same thing and the anointing and the power of the Holy Ghost now that's part of the picture that's hard for us to accept isn't it? but that's just as true as the rest of the picture that the Bible portrays unlimited authority to bring about the will of God on the earth unlimited power to perform the works that Jesus did and even greater, greater works than these Jesus said, I have no idea what the greater works would be What greater work could there possibly be than what Jesus did? He raised the dead. That's kind of high on my list of the power of God in action, you know. Some people try to spiritualize it and say, well, we can get people saved where he couldn't. Maybe they're right, I don't know. But one thing that I do know is he said we would not only do the same works but greater works. So even if getting people saved is a greater work, we still are commissioned to do the same works, the same healings, the same miracles as Jesus did. It's not an either or. It's an and. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It shall not return unto me empty of power. That means there's power when we speak it. Because that's the only way his word can return to him. It was sent to us, for us, for us. And then we speak it back to him, and it produces the power of God in reality. Paul talked about keeping our eyes on things, not the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. Then he made a tremendous statement. He said, for the things that are seen are temporal. King James uses the word temporal. The things that are seen are temporal. That word temporal means subject to change. Anything can be changed by the word of God. But that which is eternal, which would certainly include the Word, can never change. The power of God is always available. It's always available. If we'll receive it and make it a part of our own selves, it will go through the transformation process that the Word of God provides for us. Paul said it this way He said, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. By the renewing of your mind. transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul is saying the same thing James said by the Holy Ghost, and that is the Word of God is supposed to transform us. It's supposed to. That's what it was sent to do. And God's already said it will do the job if you'll let it work. Brother Hagin was preaching a a revival meeting at a, a small church somewhere in Texas. And he was there, going to be there for three weeks. Two weeks went by, and there was a, a lady that came to see him and the pastor after the service. And she brought a friend, had been bringing a friend to the, to the, to the day services. They had a service each morning, six, well, six days a week during the last two weeks. So she had been in 12 services. And um, this woman was a, I think it was her sister, And she brought her sister with her. She may have told uh, uh, the pastor about this ahead of time. I don't remember all the details. But the sister had been committed to an insane asylum. And she wasn't violently insane or anything like that. And so her sister and maybe some other family members too could go check her out every now and then and and bring her with them for family events or whatever. She got very little out of anything. She was um, barely there, more zombie-like than anything else, I guess. And uh, after being in those services, the day services for two weeks, her mind just cleared up. On that 12th day, like you'd snap your fingers, everything that had happened and all the um, symptoms and everything that she had exhibited just disappeared. She said, the, the lady that was delivered, she said it was like she was in a fog and couldn't get out but she said when my sister brought me to these services when you were preaching and teaching the word of God she said somehow or another that just held me it started clearing the fog, well after two weeks of these services she was completely well, she wound up going back to the same doctor at the same facility and so forth and he pronounced her well he couldn't explain it, he just rejoiced with her, he was glad for her that she was free, but she was completely okay well this, as you can well imagine, this word got around pretty quick. And so there was somebody else in the church whose neighbor was in a similar situation. Uh, the wife, I believe, was uh, set to be committed, or actually she had already been committed, but they hadn't um, brought her to the facility yet. Same situation. She wasn't violently insane or anything like that. And so she talked to her, um, the lady and her husband, Well, she didn't know what was going on, but talked the husband into taking her to church, letting her take her to church, her neighbor take her to church to sit in the services. Well, she'd been trying to get them to go to church for some time prior to that, but they weren't interested. They weren't saved or didn't see any value of church or the word or anything else. But now this is many months later and they're desperate. So he agreed to let her come. And the first morning that she was in the service, Brother Hagin says she stood up in the middle of the service and yawned and stretched and made a lot of noises and uh, commotion and so forth. But the people that were there, at least most of the people that were there, I guess, knew what was the situation and what was going on. They didn't, you know, let it disrupt things any more than she already had. And then the second morning, she stood up in the middle of the service and said, I've got to go to the bathroom. And so the friend, the lady neighbor that brought her, took her to the bathroom and brought her back. But after that second time, I imagine that would disrupt your service somewhat. I'm not sure. I've never had that happen. But uh, nevertheless, the third morning, this lady came back. There's only two days left of the, uh, uh, the seminar, the revival meetings that they had. The third morning, Brother Hagin said, she started watching me like a hawk. I'd walk. Brother Hagin was famous for walking side to side and he said I'd go one way and she'd watch me intently I'd turn around and come back the other way and she'd never let her eyes get off of me well by that 5th morning her mind had cleared up she wound up going back to the same doctor he pronounced her well she wound up bringing her husband to church they got saved and started serving in the church and Brother Hagin was back in that church 10 years later and they were still there and everybody was still fine now folks nobody touched her Nobody prayed for either one of these ladies. It was the power of the word of God that they were hearing. I think in a lot of cases we get so used to hearing the word of God, we take it for granted. Because it has a saturation effect. Just in and of itself because it's God's word. Doesn't have anything to do with the preacher or the teacher or the person delivering it. God's Word was designed to set people free. And God said, it always works to what I sent it to do. All He's looking for is good ground. Well, that, that ought to be you and me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of your Word. We thank you for your mercy and your willingness to deliver. We thank you, Father. That you surround us with loving kindness and tender mercies, and those things are always on all your works. Father, open our eyes to the power of your word. Open our eyes to the areas in our own thinking, in our own minds. Wrong thoughts. Thoughts that resist the truth of the word of God. That we might bring those things down. That we might alter our thinking. So that we, by thinking right, can believe right. And receive the benefit of anything and everything Jesus did for us. Jesus said, if we continued in the word, then are we his disciples indeed. And we will know the truth. And the truth will make us free. Bring to our understanding, Lord, anything, any areas of our lives. That we're not adhering to the truth. Because of wrong thoughts. That we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove or experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of the Father that we might do your will here on the earth. Thank you Father for transforming us by your word in Jesus name. Everybody.